40% of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care with guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Merrill Griff. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. Thank you so much for joining us today. So we're going to talk about narcissism today, and obviously that has really struck a chord with people because we've already had lots and lots of comments uh, and conversation about this on our social media site. So think about it. I mean, do you know someone who you think is a narcissist? I mean, perhaps it's a neighbor. It could be a coworker. It could be your boss or maybe someone who's even closer to you, like your spouse or a significant other's. Wendy Bihari is with us today. She is the author of Disarming the Narcissist, Surviving and Thriving with the Self-Absorbed. And today, Wendy's going to help us understand narcissistic behavior. We're going to learn strategies that will help us get our needs met while enmeshed in a relationship with a narcissist. And if necessary, how to escape situations that are actually unsafe for us. So welcome to Caught Between Generations, Wendy. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Meryl. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, thank you. So, Wendy, we've had, we cover lots of topics on Caught Between Generations and some dealing Mm -hmm. with children and some dealing with adults and emerging adults and then seniors. But kind of a common theme in all of this is the importance of having a positive self-esteem about feeling good about yourself. So what's the difference between my feeling really good about myself and being a narcissist? You feeling really good about yourself implies that you can feel good about yourself and you can feel good about the um, feelings, achievements, experiences of others. So you're feeling good about yourself doesn't have a negative impact on someone else who you may be in relationship with or someone who you are just relating to. It's, it could be part of a, a shared experience or it could just be something very personal to you that you have confidence, that you feel good about who you are as a person or what you've achieved as an individual, but it's not that you're better than, more superior to, more outstanding than someone else as a way of defining your sense of value or worth or lovability. You just feel good about you, whereas with narcissists, it's the other side of the spectrum. It's, you know, feeling good about yourself is absolutely mandatory. In fact, it's not so much feeling good about yourself. It's really impressing others and getting them to feel good about you, to see you in an extraordinary light, because that's what gives them a sense of value and a sense of purpose. So what that means is is that I'm um, constantly, if I'm a narcissist, I'm constantly comparing myself to someone else in order to find, in order to define that, and and that I am better than that other person. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's it's that's exactly right. There's a it's, it's a constant seeking of approval, you know, looking for others to be impressed, to be envious, maybe even a little jealous. It's a competitiveness that's weighing my, my achievements, my talents, my perhaps athletic prowess, my work performance, 
uh, my acquisitions, I'm always measuring that, let's say, against someone else as a way of knowing whether or not I have value, I have worth. They operate in a very dichotomous way where you're either extraordinarily acceptable or you're nothing. So there's really nothing in between. Being average is as bad as being nothing. Uh, so it's important to them to always be on top, to be superior, to have the ultimate control, and to have others kind of looking up to them. So are they capable of all of recognizing, you know, that someone else accomplished something and, and being able to say, wow, great job? Yeah, they can at times, as long as it's not stepping on their turf. You know, if it's something that's really quite far afield from their own area of expertise, they may be able to enjoy that person's accomplishments, but they're often quick to compare it to what they can do well in their arena. Um, They don't spend too much time really absorbing the experience of the other because they are so self-absorbed. So, Wendy, is there a difference between a man who's a narcissist and a woman who's a narcissist? There are some differences. I mean, there's also a lot of crossover. I always say there's typically a lot of divas out there that can give the kind of classic male narcissist a run for their money. What does that mean? You know, when we think of classic narcissism and we think of men um, and narcissism, we're thinking about someone who is very self-absorbed, has a sense of entitlement, um, a lot of emphasis on performance, work performance, athletic performance, sexual performance, um, their maybe academic performance if that's relevant, but a lot of it has to do with competitiveness. There tends to be a lot more energy or sometimes at the highest or more severe end of the spectrum, aggression even. And that's more typical of male narcissism, whereas with females, while you can still have the obnoxious, controlling, self-absorbed issues, it tends to orbit around things like vanity, um, appearances, uh, how their children are showing up in the world as a reflection of themselves. The, this kind of, even in 2017, this sort of overemphasis on domestic prowess and my home and my things. Um, so again, there's crossover between the sexes, but there are some distinct differences as well. So in if fact, you're one more thing I would add to that, okay, just if, sure. if I might, because I think it kind of captures it, is that you know with female narcissists, you see more of what I write about in my book called the virtuous victims. So they're they're more apt to express what sounds like being caught like a victim. So they have unique suffering. You know, you think your day was bad. Let me tell you about a bad day and what that really looks like. You think you have it rough with your partner. I'll tell you what it means to have, you know, a tough life with a difficult partner. So they kind of have extraordinary suffering. You won't hear that so much from a male narcissist. I wonder if that's because society would not accept that kind of suffering, you know, from a man. But but they mm-hmm. would accept it from a woman. That's interesting. So, yeah. Wendy, you're in a relationship. You're in a romantic relationship. So, what would be some red flags that you're dealing with someone who actually is a narcissist? Well, the first thing is one of my clients who says this so eloquently, um, sadly, but eloquently, would be this feeling of being erased. So, on the one hand... You just feel um, erased. You, you feel invisible. 
you start to feel as if your thoughts, your preferences, your opinions, your desires, your wishes, your dreams, that they just don't matter unless they are in sync with the narcissist's wishes, dreams, longings, etc. So if you happen to answer the question, quote-unquote, correctly, or you guess the right answer, you know, then you're probably okay. You know, you're in good stride with the narcissist, but it's having ideas of your own, opinions of your own, especially those that may counter theirs, can be highly problematic. And so you get somewhat diminished, devalued, erased. And again, there's a severe end of the spectrum because narcissism happens along a spectrum. And at the severe end of the spectrum, it can become quite abusive. So would you now, suggest... they charming. So, you know, another red flag is you know, they're not all um, just devaluing and controlling. They can also be very charming. They can also appear to be the, the most amazing, you know, come to the rescue kind of partner. You come to learn very quickly that they are happy to come to your rescue when it's something they can do. They actually can do and they can do well and they can stand up for you like a hero. But that's all about them. If it's something that you, the partner, the offended party, are experiencing as hurtful, offensive, upsetting, and they are the cause of that, forget the rescue. Then it's the defense, it's the attack, it's the criticism, it's the blame. Are the, are the symptoms different um, when the relationship is with someone you're not involved with romantically? Let's say it's a, a, a friend or it's a, a co-worker or a colleague. That, is it different in those types of relationships? Typically it is, although it can certainly extend into other relationships over time. So if you're spending a lot of time, say, with um, a colleague or an associate, over time that same behavior will begin to show its colors. You know, casual relationships, social relationships, community-based relationships, they can just show up really well. They're entertaining, they're funny, they're smart, they're, again, heroic. Um, they can be a bit, at times, also obnoxious, off-putting, and uh, a little too, you know, they, they, they have the answer to everything, so to speak. So some people will see that out in the public arena, but again, it takes a little time to kind of notice it, because at first glance, they just seem very charming and interesting and self-possessed and can even be a little entertaining. So what causes narcissism? I mean, everyone will immediately jump and say it has to do with parenting um, because everything gets blamed on parenting. So is, is that true? I mean, is there a genetic component to this or is it strictly environmental? I think everything is kind of a nature-nurture interplay. And I, it's, it's not so much about blaming it on parents as it is in appreciating how hard the job of parenting is and how hard it is to meet all the, un, all the emotional needs of a little one. So if we think about biology, we can think about the temperament of a little one that comes into the world who may be extremely sensitive, meaning they need even more unconditional love and holding and affection, empathy and support and permission to be able to express those sensitive emotions and have an environment that can embrace it and nurture them. If the environment, and this isn't to blame the parents, but if the environment includes caregivers who are depressed, 
who are overwhelmed, who are distracted, who are just busy, who are doing their best, but not able to meet those needs. Or, in fact, the environment is one where, you know, the caregivers are very focused on a better life for my children. Therefore, performance is the number one priority, um, forfeiting, you know, all of the other pieces of nurturing that include kind of just playfulness and holding and affection, you can. It's not an absolute one-to-one correlation, but you certainly can um, see narcissism born of those origins. That's one version. The other version is just the purely spoiled um, child, you know, growing up with privilege, growing up in a family where not only do you hear the words that you're special and you don't have to play by the same rules, but you watch that as a lived experience among your family members because of maybe special status or privilege or celebrity ship or something of that sort. So that's another just kind of narcissism begets narcissism and you see legacies and generations of that personality continue to be produced. You're listening to Caught Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merrill, and we're here with Wendy Bihari, and we're discussing her book, Disarming the Narcissist. When we return, we're going to be talking about some particular situations that, as a therapist, I hear a lot. Um, One is um, a difficulty expressing your own point of view, burying your own feelings, um, and taking blame and fault, always taking blame and fault, um, because someone else is telling you, it really is your fault. So stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Sarah Care. We provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-Care.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Back to Caught Between Generations. I am Dr. Merrill, and I'm here with Wendy Bahari. 
um, who is the author of Disarming the Narcissist. She's also the founder and director of the Cognitive Therapy Center of New Jersey and co-director of the New Jersey New York Schema Therapy Institutes. We've been having a great discussion about what really is a narcissist and what does narcissism really look like. Um, And Wendy, in your book, you talk about schemas. Can you explain what a schema is? Yeah, sure. Um, Schema schema therapy is an approach that we use in working with narcissism. And a schema is basically like a a part of your life story. So it's a, it's a theme that comes from experiences early in childhood and adolescence where when certain needs aren't met, for example, narcissists, as I said earlier, they don't necessarily get enough of what they need in the way of unconditional love and support. There's typically conditions placed upon that love based in performance. And so they might develop a schema, if you will, what we would call emotional deprivation which says something like, you know, you can't count on people to meet your emotional needs. You sort of have to figure it out for yourself is what the narcissist usually uh, comes up with over time. But so it's this emotional theme. And when it's activated, you know, we all have them to, just to greater and lesser degrees. But when, when a schema gets activated, it's kind of the same as saying my button got pushed. It's a button that's very powerful. And we have our own. Narcissists have buttons like um, that sense of feeling put down or feeling inferior because under all the bluster, there's a lot of insecurity. And so what they do is they have these schemas that would say at the core of their personality, the core of their experience is this sense of feeling not good enough, not lovable enough, that you can't count on people to meet your emotional needs, that people just want to use you if they're nice to you. So don't trust them. They're up to something. They're going to manipulate you. These are schemas. And they have a lot of emotional power when they get triggered. And because they're uncomfortable to feel, we shift into coping mode. So we move into kind of a coping reaction. The narcissist construct these coping reactions that can look like Mr. Big Shot or the bully or the controller or the I'll show you. Or the look at me, I'm terrific, I'm great, I'm better than everyone else. Um, They become workaholics. They become super autonomous. So we see how schemas affect reactions that um, are formed as a basis of trying to deal with the untenable pain that comes when they get triggered. Uh, that just brought up another point, but I'm going to go back to a schema before I, I, I actually, I'm going to ask you now. Okay. So, okay. Wendy, I, I think people who've dealt with narcissists, when, when they would hear a statement such as the tremendous pain that the narcissist is feeling, would, would react to that, would say, yeah. I don't really care. You know, <laughs> they've created so much disruption and pain in my life. I don't, you know, and it doesn't look to me either like they're really feeling any pain. So, I'm not mm-hmm. sure I, I understand what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they do say that. That's very well said. That's exactly what a partner might feel, just completely overwhelmed and frustrated and fed up. And I don't blame them. It's not their job to be looking for the suffering part that's occurring somewhere deep in the, the sediment of the narcissist's personality. In fact, they're right. The narcissist isn't feeling it in the moment. They are so, you know, busily engaged in in what's become a habit of um, overcompensating or just cutting off their access to their feelings. They 
detach from them. They go into their little fortress, their cave. They slam the door. They get on the Internet. They spend money. They cut themselves off. Um, that's another way of not feeling. So although any of us who are trained to understand this, even partners who do their due diligence in trying to make sense out of this personality, may know that what's lurking in the background is pain and suffering and insecurity. But it's not their job um, to go on a mission to find it. It's not their job to make excuses. It's just a way. What I say is learn as much as you can about this so that you don't personalize it. It's not your fault. It's not your responsibility. You're not causing the narcissism. And in fact, there's very little that can be done to change it if the narcissist isn't connecting with those feelings of vulnerability. So let, let's talk about two other, we were talking offline about, about two other schemas that you discuss in your book. When, and one of them is subjugation, which is, by your own definition, um, difficulty expressing your own point of view and often burying your own feelings. And, and I would see that um, as a therapist where, you know, someone in the, in the relationship is so domineering. And once again, it could be a romantic relationship or a professional working relationship um, that whatever you're feeling, you just you just back down. You know, you just right. bury, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I talk about it and I tell my own personal story of how when I was first learning to work with narcissists, I didn't even know what to call it, but I knew that based on what was happening inside of me when I was face-to-face with this type of client in the early days, I found myself almost like I dropped through a time tunnel and here I was reacting as I might have done when I was when I was younger. I was kind of giving in to the demands. I was apologizing even though I did nothing wrong. I was, I was feeling subjugated. I was feeling as if whatever I knew or thought or wanted to say had to be stifled. It was overwhelming. And so my schemas got activated and it was through that kind of fascinating discovery of what was happening inside of me that I began to understand better what was happening inside of them. And so knowing ourselves as well as we can, you know, sturdying ourselves so that we can be in our healthiest grown-up position, not to fight, not to just be angry, because in fact that's so exhausting after a while to be angry, but just to know that I have rights, I have opinions, I have thoughts, and they matter. And although the exit isn't always so clear or easy for a lot of people who are living with them, in some cases, it may be necessary. So let's talk about another situation, and and um, and we see this a lot in abusive relationships, where you know the the person is saying, "Well, I'm really sorry, but you know, actually, you did something that you know prompted this response, and and actually, it's your fault." Um, and you buy into that, and you take that blame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, no one's immune to getting captured by this type of individual with narcissism. Um, The brightest, the smartest, the warmest, the kindest, the most loving people can get caught up in the spell because, again, they can be very charming and interesting and rescuing and all of that in the the early days. Um, You buy into it either because you have schemas that get they start percolating. You know, if you have your own schemas of 
defectiveness or self-doubt or inadequacy or insecurity or you grew up sort of believing that, you know, you kind of have to wait your turn. If you, if it's been a long time where you've sort of lost your voice along the way because you've been with this individual for so long that you've forgotten the, the value of yourself and your own voice. I mean, this is why it's, it's so necessary to work on sturdying yourself and also understanding their makeup because when you can look across the room at the person who is, you know, saying all of these things to you to put you down, to make you doubt yourself, to try to trick you. Um, they don't do it for sport. They're doing it because they're trying to protect their own ego. The problem is they get away with it because they may be in the company of someone who has been so mowed down by these words that you've lost your voice. You've lost your sense of self. You start literally doubting yourself. And the only way to really liberate yourself from that problem, even if you're still having to work with them, having to face them on a daily basis, is to be able to see that this is their struggle and to be able to come up with language that allows you to set limits, to stand up for yourself. It won't necessarily change them, although sometimes it does plant some seeds that has them think twice about the level of harshness in their voice or the threats that they might make. But it's for your own sake. You know, it keeps you aware of your own your rights and your the respect that you're entitled to and the sense of reasonableness that you are asking for when it comes to your needs in a relationship with a narcissist. So it's, it's kind of a twofold process of what are my schemas that are getting triggered here? What's happening inside of me that's getting me to forget that I matter, that I have rights? You know, is it fear? Is it fear of abuse? Because if it's fear of abuse, then we're talking about safety issues that need to be, you know, addressed and there needs to be a plan. If it's just fear of more of the same frustration and aggravation that I'm always facing so I give in, well, what's the price I'm paying by giving in all the time in terms of myself? So, again, learning as much as we can about ourselves, um, strengthening and fortifying ourselves, and learning as much as we can about narcissism so that it does kind of slide off like Teflon. It doesn't get absorbed inside of us and make the difference. So, Wendy, give us some examples about, you know, comments or statements that you think you can make. Because I, I think as therapists, we often will say that to a client, but that clients don't really have the scripts. They don't understand. Mm-hmm. They don't have the mm-hmm. verbiage. So, could you give us some examples of what you're talking about? Yeah, I can give a lot of examples of it, but I'll give a few popular ones, but... I mean, there, it's a, it, you're right, it's a major part of helping individuals to get in touch with their truth. So if I'm sitting with a narcissistic client, because I'm speaking very much like a real person when I'm sitting with them, and if I have a partner in the room with me, they get to watch and see that it's not, you know, I'm not speaking therapist jargon. I'm actually looking at them like a real person and saying, look, Joe, I know you grew up with, uh, you know, everything has to be exactly right and you have to meet certain expectations. And as long as you did that, you were allowed to yell and scream and do whatever you wanted. I know that's what you're accustomed to. I know you can get away with this at work, but you can't do this in here. It's not okay. I'm respecting you and you have to respect me in this space. So, you know, basically it's like knock it off. But I'm saying it with 
empathy, not sympathy, not feeling sorry for him, not compassion in this moment. I'm compassionate to the fact that he has to work so hard to cover up this insecurity underneath. I'm compassionate to the insecure little boy that lives underneath. But I am not compassionate to the nastiness that comes through the narcissism, the cynicism, the criticisms, the questions, the, the um, disrespectful tone, the threats. Not, not compassionate to that. Really frustrated with that part like anybody else. And I'll say, it's real frustrating because it's such a misrepresentation of what you're trying to say. There's something important going on inside of you. I have no idea what it is, but your messenger is really bad. Because your messenger mm. just makes you look like, you know, you're out of control. It makes when, you come across as very disrespectful. Wendy, I, I want you to hold that because I, I don't want to, we have to go to break. But um, when okay. we come back, I want to continue to play that out with you a little um, in okay. terms of what the narcissist might say. And when we come back, um, we're also going to return to the topic of when you're in a situation that is unsafe and what you need to do to handle that. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know if he was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know Sarah Care LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine. At Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to drmerrill at caughtbetweengenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merrill, and I'm here with Wendy Bahari. 
And we've been discussing her book, Disarming the Narcissist, Surviving and Thriving with the Self-Absorbed, which, uh, by the way, this book has been translated into 10 languages, which is very impressive. Uh, Wendy does have a specialty in treating narcissists and the people who live and deal with them. And before the last break, we were talking about actual real situations where uh, Wendy was giving us examples about how you could, I don't want to use the word confront. Um, What's the word you would use, Wendy, when you're discussing with a narcissist that you won't really, you won't really, you know, deal with this situation anymore or allow them to be disrespectful to you? Um, Well, it is a form of confrontation to some degree, but it not. I understand why. You know, when we use the word "confront," it sounds it can sound a little too strong or too harsh. But it is a form of confrontation because we are addressing what we are experiencing, and if you're setting limits, that has to be said very clearly. You know, very head on. So whether it's face to face with eye contact, or it's written, or it's voice recording, which I sometimes coach my clients to do, record it, you know, send a voice memo that uses your voice that bends and flexes and says, look, I know you don't mean to be harsh. I know you don't mean to hurt me. You can say that with a lot of honesty when you're talking to narcissists because typically their intention is not to harm. Even though they will harm, they will hurt you, they can do really mean and terrible things and they'll... And if, when they get right down to it, it's, again, about protecting their ego. That's not making excuses for them. It's just understanding where it's coming from. It allows you the permission to say, in honesty, it may not be your intention to be harmful, but it hurts. It's not okay, and it has to stop. And, and so when do you... Why that, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So the reason why that preemptive statement is important is because it cuts down the defensiveness and the distraction. It allows some benefit of the doubt to be there, even though it still holds them accountable for behaviors that are unacceptable and behaviors that are hurtful. So let's play this completely out. So you, you say this to the person who is the narcissist and then they Mm -hmm. come back at you and they say, you know, well, it's not my fault. You know, this is what you're always doing or this is what you're always saying that, you know, creates the situation and it makes me do this or say this um, even though I don't want to. So if you would just stop doing all this, then we wouldn't have a problem. Yeah, I know you believe that, I would say. If I was staying in the role play with you, I'd say, I know you believe that. It's not a matter of fault. It's a matter of responsibility. If you're unhappy with the way I'm speaking to you or some action I've taken, you can tell me about that respectfully. You can't tell it to me this way. Number one, I can't really hear it when you talk to me that way because I just feel put off. And number two, you're not doing yourself any favors by expressing it to me that way because it doesn't really deliver your message. If your feelings are hurt, if you feel slighted, if you feel disrespected yourself, you can tell that to me. But becoming critical of me or controlling or threatening, that doesn't tell me what you're feeling inside. That's your responsibility. 
I, I really appreciate your doing this because I, I think, once again, so many of us are afraid to ask the question or are afraid to say, you know, I understand what you're saying to me and I understand what you think I should do and I, I may even want to do it, but I just don't know what to say. You know, I'm, right. I'm at a loss for words, so I really appreciate your, your sharing that with us. Yeah. The, you know, the, you'll never be at a loss for words when you understand the narcissist. I mean, I shouldn't say never. We can always get lost for words. We get stymied. We get triggered. But when you understand the makeup of this individual as much as you can, sometimes it's your boss, you have no idea about where they're coming from. But if you know something about the character traits of a person like this, you will have more language that makes it easier to present your confrontation empathically, again, not sympathetically, but with empathy, meaning I understand, but I get it, but. And that is such a winning strategy for being able to be heard. Even if you don't get enormous change, you'll get something, you can influence change, and you'll be heard, and you hear yourself speaking from a platform that is, you know, it's very comforting to be our own advocate, you know, to be able to stand up for ourselves. Most people don't like confrontation, not because they're fearful of what the other person's going to say, but we're fearful of what we're going to feel inside. When you look at narcissists, you go, I expect them to be upset with me when I confront them, but I can tolerate it. Because I know what else I'm going to say after that. I know what I'm going to do when they react to it. So as long as we know we can tolerate it, we can do it. So, Winnie, let's go back to this issue of empathy, because I did Mm -hmm. find it surprising Um, when I read your book. um, You do discuss it there about how it's important to confront uh, the narcissist with empathy. I'm not quite sure I understood that. Um, And I'd like you to explain that a little bit more. And then I want to talk about how difficult that seems to, to, to be to be able to do. But go ahead and explain that to us. Yeah, um, thank you for asking. It's it's so important to me. It's, I'm so p- passionate about the issue of empathy because let's start with this. Empathy is not sympathy. Sympathy is feeling sorrow for someone, feeling pity, feeling badly for them. Compassion is feeling compelled to do something, to help, to heal, to fix, to comfort. Empathy is neither one of those things. Empathy is just a very deep understanding of the way someone is is feeling, is experiencing the world, the way they're put together, what makes them them in that moment and in total. So when I say empathy, I'm saying I can look over at someone, whether it's my client or it's someone I meet on the street who has narcissistic tendencies, and I might have, I have some appreciation of how they're put together. I can picture the once upon a time I can see that little kid who, you know, had really strong burdens placed upon them, who may have been used, who may have had confusing messages in their life. All right, I get it, right? That's my empathy. I get it. I see it. It's vivid. And I understand, Joe, that, you know, this is what you learned. When people are nice to you, it's because they're trying to use you. So you're constantly suspicious of everyone. That's not your fault. It's what you knew. There's my empathy. But in the world of relationships, if you don't give someone a chance, if you never open up and get close, if you can't share a feeling, then you can't have a relationship that's ever going to feel 
truly satisfying to you or to them. So the empathy is what draws someone closer. Because you know, when we feel seen and gotten and understood, even if I don't endorse it, I don't agree with it, I don't like it, I understand it. I understand what's driving it. And the more you understand what's driving it, the less you take it personally, the less we become stifled in terms of our capacity to say what's so and to say what we need and to say what's acceptable and unacceptable to us. Wendy, how do you do that in a non-romantic relationship, let's say in a, in a work situation or a professional relationship? How do, how does empathy play into those types of relationships with a narcissist? You find out as much as you can about that person, be it their habits in the workplace, what matters to them, what's important to them. You know, I, I don't know if, if I've, I don't think I wrote about this in my book. It's been such a long time since I've looked over it, all the content, but I share this when I'm speaking about narcissism very often. I know from my own work experiences, one example is remembering, you know, working with someone who was a single parent. And, you know, I knew that she had a lot on her plate. I knew that, you know, her work was really important to her, but so were her children. And somehow she juggled it all. She was a force to be reckoned with. She was quite the diva. But in order to try to get her to be respectful, you know, it wasn't hard for me to tell the truth, to say something like, you know, you juggle a lot. It's really impressive. You seem to be an amazing mom and, you know, you take your work very seriously. Um, Sometimes I think, you know, though your intention is to, you know, offer good advice or offer good ideas, and I surely would like to learn from you, it's hard to hear because of the way that you're presenting it. So, you know, you can you can talk about someone's tone or their gesture or all the wisdom they may have to offer, offer that doesn't seem to be translated into something meaningful because, you know, they're too upset or they're too angry. Or I don't think you, you know, I, I know you don't mean to be intentionally um, upsetting or I know you don't mean to be intentionally disrespectful, disregarding of my work, but I'm feeling a little like push to the corner right now you know I know that may not be your intention but that's what I'm experiencing and I'd really like to work this out I'd really like to resolve this so that we can be a better team so it's it, you're putting a little bit of the the kind of hope bearing let's make this better along with the it's not acceptable it's not working for me along with the I understand and I know what you have to offer so there's an understanding, there's a confrontation, and there's even kind of a positive footnote in there. We've been talking to Wendy Bihari, and we've been talking about narcissism. Um, we're going to take our last break. I hate to take another break, Wendy, because what you're saying is is so helpful, I'm sure, to so many people. Um, but when we come back, we are going to definitely talk about um, relationships that are just too toxic um, and how you would know that and why it's important to leave these relationships. So stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back uh, to Caught Between Generations. We're all talking about narcissism with Wendy Bahari. And Wendy, so what are the red flags that you're in a relationship that really is toxic? You know, at the most severe end of the spectrum or what you're referring to as the toxic narcissist, um, you're talking about volatility that is threatening. It could be uh, violence, physical violence, um, even emotional, mental cruelty that gets to a point where, you know, you, you feel um, there, you're being so compromised, your mood, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're not functioning well as a result of the impact children exposed to that level of toxicity. Um, obviously very problematic, but when safety is threatened, you know, safety, safety is number one. That's the number one priority. So coming up with a safety plan, and if it's not with a therapist who can help you through this, then at least through maybe a domestic violence center who can help you. Not all narcissists are abusive, by the way. Not all abusers are narcissistic, but abuse is abuse, and it, it should not be tolerated. And everyone who is in a situation where they are being abused, mistreated, or threatened deserves to have safety. So safety first. Find those safe places. Come up with a plan for safety. So in most of the situations... means having to exit the relationships, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. even if it's temporarily, but to exit the relationship. 
So in most of the situations, the abusive relationships I've seen, you know, what happens is it's it's the pattern. You know, someone is abusive. Um, the other person talks about leaving or um, they actually leave for a period of time. And then the person who is doing the abusing becomes very conciliatory and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. And the next thing you know, they're showing up with flowers and candy and gift cards and I'm going to take you here and it's all my fault and they're begging and I'm so sorry and then someone takes them back again is that how a narcissist presents in that situation or do they present differently sometimes they do you're right that's the cycle typical cycle of violence but sometimes narcissists do if they have other factors in their personality most don't most don't so they'll be doing some of the okay I'll go to therapy what do you want me to do before the relationship comes to an end or even a a split, a separation. But once there's the separation, they can be rather vengeful. So if they don't have someone already lined up, you know, waiting in the wings because they hate being alone, um, they'll become vengeful. So a lot of energy goes into making you pay a price for, you know, shaming them. It's so much about the shame. Whereas with other personality types, it's, you know, literally about the feeling of abandonment. Hmm. It's it's really interesting. So they're so they're charming at the beginning, but they're not so charming at the end. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Yeah, not so charming at the end. I mean, it's 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 that sense of great shame and failure and rejection. It's like losing the race, um, and that is just unacceptable to their their need for this ego that is just supplied with extraordinary amazingness. So let's talk about leverage because um, in your book you discuss leverage and you discuss it really as a kind of a when all when all else fails kind of strategy. So discuss leverage with us a little bit. Leverage is meaningful consequences. Most narcissists don't walk into therapy saying help me. They come in because you know they're they're feeling there's something at stake, something they don't want to face, like losing a partner or losing their driver's license, losing their jobs, losing their relationships with their adult children. So leverage means there's a consequence that's meaningful enough to get them to think about the way they're behaving um, and to seek some help to try to change it. Uh, if you don't have any leverage, if there's no consequence, the first thing I ask partners when they contact me for consultations is, would he care if he lost you? And if they say, no, not really, I say, well, you know, this probably isn't going to change. Because if there's no leverage, losing you, losing their children, losing something meaningful, then it's probably done. They've probably already moved on to some other life, some other person. And you won't get changed then. I mean, therapists hmm. can try and, and build leverage, you know, predicting future outcomes that can be painful and lonely and dark, you know, your job is over, your entourage is gone, your fans and followers have left you, your wife has gotten healthy enough to realize that you can't meet her needs, your children are grown, and you're alone. For some, that might have a bit of a startling, stunning essence or quality where they'll sit tight and do some work. Most won't. They'll just keep moving. So do do narcissists ever change? Do they they have the capability of ever changing? They do change. Some do. I mean, not enough. And part of it is because we don't have leverage. We don't get enough leverage. We can't hold on to it. They can usually talk their way out of it. Um, they threaten their partners. Um, oh, go ahead and leave me. I'll take the kids. You'll see what happens. You'll have nothing. So, you know, they can find a way to 
manipulate the situation. They have connections. They buy their way out of legal dilemmas. Um, so when you lose the leverage, it's tough. But when you have it and you have a therapy that works, and of course I'm passionate and biased about schema therapy, but when you have a therapy that works, you have a therapist who is sturdy enough to not be fooled, to not be knocked down or intimidated by them, there's a good chance of getting meaningful change just as you could with others. It's, it's a long haul, but you can get change. Wendy, do you have any final thoughts for us that you want to share with us? My only final thought or, or comment usually is, in addition to really enjoying your interview, Meryl, thank you, but is, is just for those who are listening who are dealing with living with narcissists right now and struggling, because it is so hard to be up against them, um, to find your voice. You know, and I don't mean a voice of anger. It's easy to be angry. It's, and anger can be very toxic also to our system. So while you have a right to be angry, you don't want to linger there too long. You want to find a way to become more assertive, more of an advocate for yourself, more caretaking of yourself. You know, find that voice and remove that doubt about your own needs and the reasonableness of your requests. Wendy Bihari, you have been a great guest. You really have, and, and we've learned Thank a lot you. from you today. Uh, Wendy is, once again, the author of Disarming the Narcissist, Surviving and Thriving with the Self-Absorbed. Wendy, do you have any other contact information you'd like to share with us? Yeah, thank you. Um, you can go to my website, which is www.disarmingthenarcissist.com, or just type in Wendy Harry into your browser and usually brings my website right up. And thank you for asking. Oh, thank you so much for sharing this with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So, my pleasure. uh, Oh, thank you. Uh, So, as I always close with you, I always ask you to do just one thing for yourself, and I and I always tell you, and I mean this because I've, I've been a caregiver and actually now I'm a caregiver again, that being a caregiver is hard and you mean a lot to a lot of people. So you really have to take good care of yourself and do just one thing for yourself. And usually I give you some examples, like just walking outside for five minutes. But what I really want you to think about today is really um, the wise words, the wisdom of Wendy, Wendy Behari and her talking about how you need to set limits. Um, and you need to stand up for yourself um, and you you can't allow yourself to be in a position where people are taking advantage of you. And she's talking about it in the context of someone who's a narcissist. But as we all know, in taking care of people, there are often other people around us. It could be other family members. It could be neighbors. And sometimes it's friends um, who always have opinions about what we're doing in our caregiving and tend to make us feel bad about what we're doing or make us feel guilty. So I want you to go back and um, If you have a chance, listen to uh, the podcast again um, and listen to some of Wendy's suggested ways of responding to situations because I think they have a lot of relevance uh, to a lot of situations. So do that one thing for yourself this week. And as always, take good care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in to Caught Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week.